welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast, episode 79. As the cycling season draws to a close, I recently closed out my 2021 race season with a bang as I went hard to the ground, smashed my elbow, had surgery just a few days later, and I'm learning to embrace the quiet of the offseason with a newfound respect, even if it is a forced respect. This break will likely affect my ski season, especially early ski season anyway, which is something that I really love here in Vermont, the ability to mix it up, both alpine and Nordic skiing. Our guest today is professional skier, Ryan Cochran Siegel. Now I gloss over some of the details in this conversation so as to appear well-versed in the sport of skiing with Ryan, but let's state some facts right from the get-go. Ryan is one of America's best skiers. He won a World Cup last year. Now let's think about that in mountain bike terms for a second. When an American wins a World Cup, that comes once in a blue moon. So that is something to be celebrated and it means that you are the best in the world in your discipline on that day. Ryan is one of the progeny of the Cochran family of Alpine ski fame. That is to say his mother is one of four siblings in the US Ski Hall of Fame. His mother, Barbara Ann Cochran, won an Olympic gold medal 50 years ago this winter. Now the connections go a little bit further. His aunt is Marilyn Cochran. She is the first American, male or female, to win a World Cup overall ski title. Also, if you've ever ordered anything from Untapped, you might have received a friendly handwritten note. That's Marilyn. If you live locally and if you've had a hand-delivered Untapped delivery, that's Marilyn. And her two sons... Doug and Roger Brown, they are my co-founders in Untapped. In fact, Roger was on this show sometime summer 2021 when he had recently completed Unbound. The Cochrane Ski Area is where Untapped was founded and where we had our origin maple sugar bush. That's something we're going to talk about in this show. The Cochrane Ski Area is right down the road from where we live today, where we recorded this conversation, and it represents everything that is right and awesome about American ski culture today. More to the point. Ryan learned to ski at Cochrane's and is now an Olympic hopeful for these upcoming winter games. We're going to talk about that today. Vermont, it is a super outdoorsy state. Hiking trails, biking trails, ski trails, they weave all over the place. It is the Green Mountain State, where we go outside to recreate. We don't stay inside and hibernate. That was not supposed to rhyme. I grew up skiing, a tiny bit of ski racing, a lot of jibbing around the local park as a teenager. There are countless parallels to be drawn between professional cycling and professional skiing. So talking about the dynamics of how teams are formed the finances of teams, to operate as an individual versus as part of a team, the training, the coaching, the visualization, the length of the season, how it's going to be lived 24-7, 365 days a year. And maybe most notably, these are lifetime sports done at the professional level. So we're going to dive into all of these plus lots, lots more. One of the best quotes in this podcast is Ryan saying, it is a physics sport. It's aerodynamics and efficiency. I mean, talk about parallels. Cycling is a sport based on efficiency and aerodynamics. It's just so wild that a ski race is, say, two to three minutes at a time, and a grand tour is three weeks of racing, but still, they're based on efficiency. It's really cool to to let that mull over your mind over these parallels. 
I am enormously thankful for Ryan for taking the time just a few days prior to jetting off in pursuit of a colder, snowier autumn than what we have right now. I am also thankful for Whoop for being a partner of mine in this nonstop pursuit of pushing life to the limits. So one of the first things that I noticed when Ryan walked through the door was that he was wearing a Whoop. It is fascinating, the data that is being compiled now, as I'm just about uh, 10 days post-crash and about a week post-surgery, what it's indicating to me is my body is wrecked. I mean, right now I'm not riding, I'm not exercising, I'm not exerting myself, I'm hardly moving to be honest, and yet my whoop is recognized that my body is ravaged. Every day, with the exception of two, over the past 10 days, I've woken up deep, deep in the red with a recovery score. So I look to my whoop for that insight here in the off season as I continue to get better. And most certainly when I start my recovery and rebuilding for the 2022 season ahead. If you want a brand new whoop strap for free, if you want to have a $30 credit to kickstart your membership, if you want to have free shipping on your whoop, please just head over to join.whoop.com TED and it's going to be yours. Again, that's join.whoop.com slash TED. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's bring on this conversation with Ryan and bring on ski season ahead. are on cycling in July during the Tour de France and all eyes are on skiing in the winter every four years. But yep. the reality is these sports are going on 365 days a year. So I'm curious, what does a traditional calendar year look like for you? And then I will lead that with my follow-up question is, what does an Olympic calendar year look like for you? Yeah. Um, I kind of, I view it as like seasonally. So like end of March is when the race season ends. So then the new season starts kind of like early April. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously it shakes up just because it's winter sports. So I'll like go about it that way. And mm-hmm. obviously you can connect the dots starting January 1st, but yeah. So April, it's usually like a downtime. Um, we have trained in different places in the past, like Vitville in Norway um, for an April camp. Usually we're out in Mammoth as well for two week, just spring camp kind of being on snow moving around. But it's usually like the very big down part of the time like just recovering um enjoying time with friends and family the stuff that you know we don't get to have Mm -hmm. for the rest of the part so Mm -hmm. and then it's a lot of just like i mean working out in the gym um it's a cool sport where strength matters strength endurance um but also like your aerobic capacity so getting to be outdoors and biking hiking all that stuff is sweet too so that's like how i spend my early part of my summer and then we're just trying to chase snow the rest of the rest of the prep period. Um, I went to Zermatt and Sosfe in Switzerland this past summer from August 6th until September 15th. Wow, so nice. pretty big block, um, just trying to get on snow and um, get caught up with equipment stuff. So from there and then came home for a few weeks, went back over for um, some training in Austria for two weeks, had a race. Now I'm here, came back. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of back and forth, a lot of traveling. Oh yeah. Um, heading to copper mountain colorado um this week and then that's when like kind of our last prep push happens um training on the speed venue there and then it's just full go i mean i'll have um fly to alberta for lake louise world cup which is the first speed races 
And the first race is the Friday after Thanksgiving. We have three races that weekend. The following week, weekend, we have three races in Beaver Creek. Then it's like following weekend, a GS is scheduled. I'm, I should say I, I do three events, so I don't do slalom. So like there's some yeah. mixing in there. But from then on, it's just full World Cup schedule all the way. Um, normally through the season, obviously with the Olympics, like then that kind of puts a weird period of time where going over to China or um, wherever it may be mm-hmm. competing there. And, yeah. So when race season does start, is it, are you racing virtually every weekend? Week after week after week, or is it? Yeah, because of um, <laughs> the schedule is like built where it's like kind of tech skiers get their like bulk seasons and then or like heavy racing periods and then speeds kind of off and then speed and qualify picks up. that real quick. Tech skiing meaning yeah. slalom, slalom and GS, yep. yeah, and then speed is super G and downhill. Yep, yep, um, yep. And so because I ski GS along with speed, then I'm kind of just like. <laughs> When the speed guys are getting the break, then I'm like, okay, got to go train for a GS. <laughs> so it, yeah. it definitely like adds up, and um, I, I mean, I think I also enjoy that trying to figure out everything, trying to optimize everything, and um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a cool balance, but it's pretty busy for sure. Yeah, no kidding. And then how about okay, we're going into 2022 Beijing Olympic year. What kind of wrench is thrown at, at your season? Yeah, what what does how does it differ your schedule? Um, I mean, for the winter itself, it definitely, I think there's, there's a precedence. I mean, obviously every single world cup that we do like is important. Um, it's a huge opportunity and that's kind of what we're there for racing for. But at the same time, it like every world cup now is a qualifier for the Olympics. And obviously I think all of my teammates and myself, our goal is to be there at the Olympics competing. So, um, it's kind of like, it adds just that extra little notch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, in general, like, I think you have to go about it just focusing on where you are right now. Like my next race is um, a downhill race in Lake Louise. So that's kind of like where my mind's at, trying to get adjusted, trying to like get ready for that track. Mm-hmm. And I think by the time like February rolls around, then then that's when you're ready for that to happen. But to be planning for that right now is, um, I think it's just counterproductive and you get lost in, in the distractions. Yeah. Are the tracks the same year after year? I mean... Like, so there must be a massive amount of visualization in mm-hmm. that kind of thing, like, so that you know precisely where you are at every moment on the course. Yeah, yeah. Every downhill track is the same. Okay. Um, I think I'm pretty sure they set the courses with GPS, so yeah. like the gates will be in the same place. The snow will change year to year, yep. um, and then based on how they can prep the hill with snowmaking and what they can get done, then that'll change as well. But for the most part, like, I mean, I could. I can run in my mind um, every downhill that I've done. There are a few that I haven't done that much. So like mm-hmm. Garmisch, I've only raced once. So I feel like I might get confused in the middle. I would just have to be there once. That's and so then, wild. Yeah, but it is a, it's cool in that sense. And then every other hill too, um, on a nor- normal calendar year, like in GS, Slalom, and Super G, those hills are the same. It's just different course sets. So mm-hmm. a little less predictable, but yeah. How much hype is there around your mother Winning an Olympic gold 50 years ago this year. Yeah. Um, a little bit, a lot of bit. A little bit, yeah. I had an interview. I've had a few, like, I mean, the Olympics are weird right now, especially because, like, before I got hurt this past winter, there was a lot of attention. I was having a really good season. And um, so now there's, like, a little bit more attention as well with Olympic coverage and everything. So I've had a few interviews, and I had one recently that was at the Scuria, um in September. 
And they were like, yeah, so like, have you thought about it being 50 years since your mom won? And I was like, honestly, I had that thought had not crossed my mind until just now. And so now it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, shoot. I, it's cool, though. I think yeah. um, it's just a cool, it's a cool story. Um, obviously, I want to be in Beijing. I'm not saying that I'm there yet. I still need to qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I've always been able to share so much of my story with the rest of my family, um, my mom included. And um, I think her accolades and her ability when she was a ski racer, I mean, to be an Olympic champion is pretty spectacular. So I'm sure she'll get a lot of attention yeah. that time of the year, too. Especially um, right here in town. That'll, yeah. be the, that'll be the story of the ski area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Mickey and Ginny Cochran, they cut some trees down. They installed a rope tow in their very steep backyard, I want to say in about 1961, about three miles from here. And that has gone on to become the Cochran Ski Area. Um, to our uninformed audience and maybe to the people that you meet out and about in your travels, how do you describe Cochrane Ski Area? Um, I think for one, like the biggest thing that stands out is it's definitely a place, but I see it more as a community. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like this area especially has just a very healthy lifestyle in terms of like bringing values to their kids and um, giving them opportunities to experience cool things like obviously skiing and in more or less your backyard. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I view it. It's definitely, it's changed a lot for the better, in my opinion, from not that when we were growing up, it was like a bad place. It just, it was more raw. Yeah. Like we were very dependent on natural snow. Um, and I think with what we were, we've been able to do with fundraising for the ski area um, and just like community involvement too, we've been able to actually like push for really good snowmaking. I mean, there are lights too. So now we can ski, I think until like 8 p.m. on weeknights. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely like, there's a lot, a lot of popularity with it here in Richmond, and I think in like the Champlain Valley. And with that too, I think the crossover that has been insane the last few years is the attention with the trails for the summer too, like the bike trails, and you can hike too. But yeah. it just, it seems like it's packed and busy every nice day. This weekend, I was over there yesterday actually, and that was the only car there. But it was dumping rain. <laughs> dumping so. rain. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's fascinating. It's it in the cycling world. It is beginning to be known for gravel. We start our event route in Vermont there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you go there on any Tuesday night in the summer. And I'm not kidding. One time I went, I'm like, man, there's a lot of cars. I'm going to count the cars. It was like 120 cars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this place is a hill that when I'm out and about in my travels, I describe as, I don't know, 300 feet high. Yeah. I mean, like, what, what do you suppose yeah, the that's elevation what I is? Say. I mean, it is like, it's not much. And obviously, like, where the ski trails are, like, lift, lift accessible, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's probably 300 vertical feet. The mound itself kind of, I feel like, yeah. is it goes up a little further. Um, like, the sugar bush is actually pretty expansive. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's everything you need in order to learn how to ski, learn to love to ski, mm-hmm. and then kind of show you that, I don't know, trail to keep going. Um, and experience cool places. I mean, like Stowe is obviously a very far advanced mountain relative to Cochrane's, but yeah. Cochrane's is um, perfect for families and, and little kids learning to rip. And I think too, like um, also people that, you know, have to work in Burlington or in the area and like they get off work at five, they can go take a few runs mm-hmm. um, rather than the full full travel up and back to Stowe or Sugarbush. Yeah, big time. Um, okay, thinking now about like the makeup of of your support team and and the variety of teams that go into to being a pro skier. So if you are a professional cyclist, you you sign with a independent team 
and you use all that team's equipment. And then it's only at the Olympics and World Championships that you race representing your country. My understanding, and I could be completely wrong, is that you're largely exclusively racing for your country. How do, how do teams work? And then on top of that, when we go into like Alpine A, B, C, D. Yep. Yeah, so it's a little, I would say it's actually structured pretty similarly um, where we have so like the U.S. ski team, U.S. ski and snowboard. Um, they're the ones that are like providing all the support. Um, I mean, coaching staff, our technicians, um, sports psychs, PTs, doctors, everyone is all facilitated through them. Mm-hmm. And then because it like, obviously we're competing every single year, the focus is every single year, you know, skiing the world cup, the Olympics are kind of that like extra bonus. Um, and the only time that it changes is that three week period when then we're like team USA. And it's kind of a weird, um, transition just cause like ski team is very familiar, you know, all your sponsors, you know, you have like the same uniform and then all of a sudden it just switches like advertising is very restricted. All of that stuff mm-hmm. comes into play with like um, rule 40 and you kind of have to like, yeah, you become more of representing your country. Obviously we're still, we're always representing USA. Um, it's just like understanding, I guess where the money comes from for us sure. to be able to do is um, you kind of have to recognize that. And so I think with USG and snowboard too, we have a lot more obligations with like sponsors um, and providing our like time to give to them during that time. So how much, how much independence do you have as a skier um, to seek out your own sponsorships? Yeah. Oh, it's completely up to the skier, and yeah. like also dependent on where you are in your career, what yeah. your ability is. Um, the faster, you, the faster you <laughs> ski, the better skier you are. You get a lot more opportunity, uh-huh. um, which I'm kind of realizing now. But you, I think the biggest thing that's up to you is ski equipment, and that really you have to find something that works to your personality and your style, um, and. Yeah, all that side, you get to pick all that. Everything that's a team sponsor, obviously, you have to represent on race day. Um, so I think there's, it's a good system that, it's a good system, especially for the top level skiers, because they're provided with so much opportunity. And obviously, there's the financial aspect of it, too. And I think it trickles down to the lower levels, too, like development team or people with skiing norams. Um, it's not a perfect system, but I think, you know, it shows there are a few skiers. Um, that have shown that it can work if you if you figure it out and you play your part. Sure. Yeah. So, okay. If you're skiing f- with the support of USA Skiing, Ski mm-hmm. and Snowboard, presumably that is uh, independently funded, correct? Yeah. I mean, it's not a government-funded program. Yeah, no. No, which... not government-funded um, whatsoever. And the revenue is broken down. I mean, I don't know exact numbers. I believe, like, the yearly budget... Is like fifty million. I think it's like twenty-five or twenty is provided by advertisements, TV rights, that stuff, and then um, the other. I might. These are all guesses, I'll not exact. <laughs> yeah, and a big portion of it too is just from um, the trustees and donors too. Um, we definitely have an incredible support system with that regard. Some very very well accomplished um, people that um, really are huge supporters of the ski team. And then we also have um, some revenue just from memberships and all of that too. So it's a, it's a big, um, big machine, but it's actually surprising like how much we do rely on, um, I mean, big, big and little um, donations. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm thinking in cycling, the most successful teams are typically the ones with the biggest budget. Yeah. And then every once in a while you have you know, a hero team that does it with, with pennies. 
And then as, as you're competing against, I got to assume the, the Scandinavian countries are some of the fastest. Are, yeah. are, how is it working outside of the United States? Are they government funded? Or, or similar model, do you think? There are, I believe like, I mean, I don't know this for sure. I actually know that like the Norwegians obviously are incredibly talented. They've always had so much strength with their Alpine and Nordic, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but their budgets are like, I think in the past few years, they've kind of, they've been pretty tough to get by, which is surprising because I think at a certain level, like the athletes are going to be able to shine the mm-hmm. way they can. Um, but it definitely like it, that effect and that like financial dependence and kind of scarcity trickles down to lower levels when, um, it just makes it harder to like, it makes you question whether it makes sense trying to push yourself to that level. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have the powerhouses. So Austria and Switzerland have insane budgets. Yep. Um, I think like, probably 200 Alpine athletes were named to the Swiss team this year. Like a crazy, and like, obviously it's kind of built like a pyramid where um, a lot, a lot of development kids, young yeah. kids, 18, 19, but yeah. it, even just their kind of like World Cup A team is, I bet, double or maybe even triple the size of us. It's yeah. just, it's highly competitive and um, I think it's a part of their culture, which makes, yeah. you know, the country, the, the citizens of those countries want their ski teams to be mm-hmm. um, competitive and winning and because of that, there's a, there's a lot more ability for them to finance that. Sure. How about Luddite question? What does it mean to be A team, B team, development team, et cetera? So it, it used to, I mean, it's changed because it used to be like all about the financial support you'd receive. And because the budgets and expenses are so expensive with ski racing, um, like I was B team for, I don't know, a while, like eight or nine years, I think. And when I first made it, I was fully funded, meaning I didn't have to pay a penny, um, and that was awesome. And then with the budget cuts and everything that U.S. Ski and Snowboard went through kind of in the mid-2010, like 2013 through 2018, I think, mm-hmm. um, we started having to fundraise. Like we would start of the season and be like, okay, you have to foot a $20,000 bill, but we were able to fundraise. And so I don't think um, during that time, at least on the B team, no athlete was paying out of pocket. It was And the fundraising raised. was done by you or yeah, by we were, the team? Yeah, separate from the team, yeah, um, yeah. connected, because we were still using like the trustees and mm-hmm. those donor lists. Um, and then that kind of model transformed into what it is now, where we still have, now it's just the Alpine, Alpine fundraiser. It used to be a B team fundraiser. Um, and still same premise of trying to just get support from the community that can go directly to Alpine. And so I don't know how many years we've been able to have fully funded D team through A team. Um, so that's basically like where it matters. The weird thing about ski racing is like you could be on the B team or even the C team and be skiing World Cup, same as A team members. It's just a matter of, it's all about world ranking. So I think qualifying for A team is top 20 in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like pretty well established World Cup skiers. Uh, and then B team is age dependent so the younger you are and like the higher ranking you are yeah. then you'll be on the b team versus like if you're 27 you pretty much have to be i think probably like top 35 i don't know yeah. what it is anymore yeah. but it's competitive um is it i don't even know the word self-fulfilling prophecy i mean if, if the more you ski the more opportunity you have to, to score results whereas the less you ski the harder it is to score <laughs> results and how do you like how do you get start invitations in the first place I think it, yeah, you, I mean, you have to, at the end of the day, kind of provide your own opportunity, whether it's showing fast skiing in training, that usually creates a really good argument for you to get um, those start opportunities. And a lot of the time when you're kind of working your way up onto the World Cup, 
you'll get put in time trials if there are open spots. Um, open spots open up because of retirements or injuries, those types of things. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think in the U.S. we do a good job of trying to make sure that if a skier is promising, like shows, you know, like that they work hard and that they have the talent to be good someday, then giving them the opportunity to do so. Um, but it is, it can be cutthroat as well. Like there are times when there's just not spots and like you're competing against your teammates in order to, to work your way up. And a hundred percent, like, I think I benefited a lot from this, just being able to be given so many opportunities, um, getting used to what the world cup is like and you can't to a certain point, you can't train for it. You just have to ski it to get used to it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know other people have definitely not had as fortunate of opportunities as I have. I hear you. Uh, how about the makeup of the team itself? When you were talking about sports psychs, doctors, so on and so forth. So let's fast forward to weekend after Thanksgiving. You're up in Lake Louise. How many representatives are there helping you out individually? And then how many sort of USA? Yeah. Whole? When we're traveling um, internationally, all of that, unless it's a major event, it's really just kind of our core team. So it'll be the athletes. Um, our servicemen who are the ones tuning our skis and then our coaches. And we usually, with each team that's set up, one of our coaches obviously has a lot of experience with skiing, but then they're also, so our, for speed, it's like Ben Black is kind of our strength and conditioning coach on the road. Um, we're all kind of, we have a head strength and conditioning coach pair, but we kind of communicate with him um, back and forth. So team size, I don't know what the numbers would be. My guess is around 20 people wow. being up in Lake Louise. But that, when we go to Beaver Creek, because it's the only home race of the year in Colorado mm-hmm. um, the following week, then it's like all of you ski <laughs> and snowboard seems like they're in town. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, do, you, do you travel with anyone in particular? Or is it it's part of that, that bigger picture program? Yeah, bigger picture program. Um, I kind of bounce between the GS team and the speed team. So um, there's a little bit... Like my schedule is definitely unique in terms of where I'm training, um, what just fitting is fitting into my schedule, that type of thing. But when I'm with a speed team, it's like speed team. When I'm with a tech team, it's tech team. I'm not really. There are some athletes um, that have more independence. Like um, obviously, Michaela, um, she rightly so deserves. <laughs> te- like she has a crazy schedule. Yep. Um, and so she has a huge support system that's able. That's just for her. Um, and it's what she needs, and I think that's really valuable. I think it's also valuable. The girls have been able to, so like Nino O'Brien, Paula Moulton, um, they've been able to train with her, and having access to that is really huge too. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of it just you got to figure out like what's best for you, and then also what's best for the team, and um, if you can find that balance, and um, it, it can be really beneficial. And, yeah. yeah. Right on. Um, you first. Won a junior world championship in 2012. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Um, this past season, we call it the end of the year, right? So last season was 2021, I yep. believe. Okay, yep. you had a you had an awesome 2021 season. Yep. Also with uh, a, a a crash in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> not to gloss over such a large period of time. How how do you describe your chronology through, like your first World Cup to where you are now? A steady progression, or, or yeah. where has it been? I definitely had uh, um, some big hills and some big <laughs> valleys in there. Um, yeah, when I I kind of had a quick ascension to the ski team. It was mm-hmm. like it seemed like it was a matter of three weeks when I went from maybe trying to ski in college to then being on the development team. And 
um, trying to get more into speed. And so, yeah, those first two years that I was on the team, like, were quick. I went from skiing Norham's fists to the following year I had a World Cup spot and skied a few speed races, scored World Cup points when I was 19 years mm-hmm. old, which I think is pretty young. Mm-hmm. And so, like, having that kind of track, um, there's a lot of potential in kind of seeing that. And when I, so 2012 rolled around, went to World Juniors, was able to win the downhill and combined. The following year, um, went to World Championships, which was actually like kind of the same precedence in skiing as the Olympics, obviously not the same stage, but there was like a lot of potential. Um, and that's actually where I got injured and tore my ACL in my knee. And from that, there was kind of complications that went down and it definitely led me down a different path than I um, would have envisioned prior. But I think it also like it taught me a lot about ownership and just kind of perspective too. So from there, it took a while to get back. Like I um, skied one World Cup, I think, in 2014. Kind of got re-injured, and then I didn't ski World Cup until this, like winter of 2016. And it was just like every year trying to lower my fist points so that I could have a better start in World Cups. Trying to break onto the World Cup. Um, the timing allowed me to be able to be competing in Korea for those Olympics in 2018. And then I, it seems like it's like been a pretty constant progression from there. Every single year, just chiseling away world ranks and getting down, um, getting better starts. And this past two years, I feel like I've been able to compete um, in most races. And so not just because I'm sitting here with this giant <laughs> bandage and splint on my arm, um, injuries are inherently part of both of our sports. Um, where, does, where does the danger of, of skiing fit in? Is it sort of this healthy dose of reality or is it the kind of thing you have to completely check out? Or like, yeah, where is danger in the spectrum of your perspective? I think for me, um, knowing what I've been through, like obviously you don't want to experience injury. I mean, it Correct. sucks, it's brutal. Like I, I feel for you right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think it also it is a part of the sport and part of the reasons why it's fun. You know, you get to play with that balance of like <laughs> how much risk you're, you're willing to take. And um, sometimes you have to deal with those consequences because of those risks. But I know, um, yeah, this past winter with what I experienced with my injury, it was, yes, it was like severe, but in my head I was kind of like, whatever, it, whatever it takes to, you know, be as good of a ski racer as I can be, I'll, I'll deal with it. Um, so I kind of, I don't know, I've, ha- I've learned to have the mentality of like, it's a matter of acceptance, like accepting when you're in the start gate, like there are risks. I mean, you could get injured on the first gate or you can make it down and be a champion. And mm-hmm. like, you gotta, I mean, that's life, you know, you gotta, you gotta put yourself out there in order to get what you want. And it doesn't always work out, but you know, you have to, you have to learn from those moments. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, diving into... <laughs> The, the specifics of, so you did your MCL? The ACE, yeah, so ACE, all in the left knee, ACL, uh-huh. um, lateral meniscus I tore, medial meniscus I tore, um, and then also tore cartilage. So I had a lateral meniscus transplant and a medial meniscus, or uh, sorry, a cartilage, lateral meniscus transplant, cartilage transplant, and a medial meniscus repair, ACL repair. Um, these were, they're two separate incidences. So okay. like, it wasn't all at once. Um, but it was the the transplants were um, that was a big procedure, and that took a lot of time to come back from. And I still like because of that, I still 
definitely have to be gentle with my yeah. left knee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you were not the first Cochrane to be on the show. I had a, a fun conversation with your cousin Roger after he did the 200 mile unbound. I've listened to it. Yeah. That was a good one. I, I talked to Roger often about, we talk about sports in general. Obviously, he and you love Boston sports, traditional ball sports. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, in those conversations and in the skiing background and the cycling background and ball sport combination, it's, there's sort of this forever question about nature versus nurture and the 10,000 hour rule. Um, cycling is fascinating because it, so much is what you're inherently born with, right? Yeah. Like, do you have the right skeleture, musculature? Lung capacity, heart capacity, all those things. Yeah. Wicked broad question. Where does it all fit in in skiing? I think, like, when I think of skiing, um, I don't think it's the same as, like, basketball or football where you kind of, those body types are, like, so specific to the decisions they're in. I think you can, there is such a variety of ski racers out there who have had success that you kind of, you're given more opportunity, like, to do what you want with what you have. Um, and I think that might also honestly just because like ski racing is becoming an elitist sport and it's just not that accessible to that broader population. Like I think there is probably an ideal body type, but I think that like the spectrum of that is also, it allows for a lot of different people. And so I don't know, I feel like I'm like, like six foot, six one. So like Decently tall, not like crazy. I'm not like a specimen mm -hmm. athletically, um, but I'm able to kind of like do what I have. I'm very, my like um, power is not very impressive at all. Like I can't jump very high at all. Lifting power, jumping power. I can like lift. I think I have good strength, mm -hmm. um, but it's nothing impressive. Like I never test that well. I'm kind of, I feel like I'm pretty average to like mediocre for all the tests, but then I can go out and ski and like I'm a pretty good skier. So, mm -hmm. I think that's what's so cool about the sport, you know? Like, you're not limited just because whether you're short or tall, um, big boned or a skinny guy. Like, yep. you can kind of, you can make it work for the most part. I think speed is a little, you want to be a little bigger. Gravity, gravity pushes you down the hill, so you want sure. mass to kind of grab onto that force field. And then, I mean, talking about a sport that's decided by hundreds of seconds, mm -hmm. it's, you're doing this crazy fast time trial you know, I'm thinking of it from pure athletic, like brute athletic standpoint versus the, the scientific aerodynamic side of things. Where is that split? And maybe, you know, better jump off question would be, when you're working with coaches, what are you doing specifically outside of the what strength you, and fitness? Well, yeah, what are you focusing on? Yeah. I mean, it depends. Like, depending on what level you're at, um, sometimes it's more beneficial. You're just trying to optimize. Like if it's equipment, figuring out something that you think could be, um, you know, be able to save you a little bit more time than trying to find that avenue. I think addressing weaknesses, um, aerody aerodynamics can be a huge factor. Just opening up, that's kind of where you're comfortable. But in order to be fast, if it's high speeds, you really need to be compact and fighting with that. And then it's also just like the, the power you're generating in the turn and how that's being transferred down the hill. Um, it is like... It's a physics sport, so conservation of energy, your momentum, all that comes into play um, drastically. And, and figuring out how, you know, like if you make a tighter turn, then you're also pressuring hard in the snow. So like that drag that you're creating with the ski, like is that counterproductive to um, the power you would then be generating to push you down the hill? And, and just trying to play with that all mm -hmm. the time, you know? I think that's where 
the sport becomes so much more about you battling the mountain and the elements versus you battling like your competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Well, yeah, that's therein lies the time trial. <laughs> um, so when you go to Zermatt in the off season or early season to be training, like you're practicing repetition, you're practicing the perfect technique, the perfect. Yep. Okay. Yep. And it depends just based on what the snow conditions are and what the terrain is of the training hill that we're on. Mm-hmm. Um, Zermatt's cool where it has actually a pretty good length downhill, um, which is unique for the summertime, unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere and we can't travel there right now, I'm um, hoping next year. But just getting time on snow, you can kind of push conditioning a little bit to see what it's like. Um, and then on flat sections, you're trying to work on like the little things with gliding and, and where like it's crazy how much time adds up when you're just a little bit off. Um, I'm, I definitely feel more comfortable in like the steep kind of terrain sections because I feel like that's where my technical um, giant slalom background can come in and play and um, I kind of have to battle with everything else that I feel like I'm weaker at. Mm-hmm. But it's like just figuring out, you have to be honest with yourself too and like recognize those weaknesses in order for you to be able to address them and make them better. Yep. How about the the technical side, the testing that you guys are doing? Um, you know, you give, you travel with, 38 pairs of skis or whatever mm-hmm. number and you travel with a lot of equipment what is that testing period like in the early season versus you know day of when you're going to choose a ski yeah it's um way way more important kind of like august september october november mm-hmm. um because so normally i actually wouldn't be testing that much i'd play with like a binding setup here like maybe a different ski model there but this past spring i would switch ski companies so i uh shout out to shout out to head um, yeah, I should also shout out to Rosinol just because I mean they were with me for <laughs> 17 years, so um, I appreciate both just um, times I've, that I've had with both both those brands. But anyway, yeah. So head um, switching to that I think gives me a lot of just potential in the future to to do what I want to do in my career. Um, but right now I'm definitely I feel like I'm doing a lot of catching up, and it was crazy this summer. That's why I was over in Switzerland for five and a half weeks, was just trying to get dialed with all the equipment across the three disciplines that I'm focusing on. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot. I'd like, also give a shout out to my serviceman, Heinz Hammerlay, and then um, Daniel as well, because they were just putting on ski after ski every single day. I mean, we were schlepping like five or six pairs of skis up two trams, um, a gondola, and then up on the hill at like, I don't know, twelve or 13,000 feet. So it's a lot of work. It's a Is crazy it, amount of work. How much do you notice ski to ski, binding to binding? Uh, I feel like a Luddite in that regard. Like you put me on a really nice Cannondale, and like bikes feel very similar to me. I mean, I can notice large changes, but I'm largely only ever given really nice bikes. So yeah. it just feels like nice bike to nice bike to nice bike. Are you noticing these uh, minute differences or, or pretty I, macro? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out those subtleties as much as I can, um, just depending on like how I'm pressuring the ski, how it's reacting, those types of things. But I know that like there are some guys that are were really talented at it. I know Bodie was like insane, had a crazy amount of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm definitely not like him. I think I can. I'm just trying to find a piece of equipment that I'm comfortable on enough that I know I can go out there and like ski the way I want to. That's kind of my goal. Um, but I think I have to like I. I mean, I there's a constant communication channel between myself, my serviceman, um, the kind of like the workers with the ski company too, um, with head. So that dialogue is definitely like key in order to try to find which is best for me. But it's, there's a little bit of touch and like, obviously every time we're, we're also training with a timer out there too. So there is kind of that 
um, quantitative feedback, but a lot of it is kind of qualitative and just like you got to make a decision one mm-hmm. way or another. Yeah, bingo. Uh, you do any spend any time watching Drive to Survive? Formula One? No, I haven't. Oh man, I've heard season it's, three, bro. No, I know. No, the thing that's crazy though is that they um, two winters ago we actually met with some of the. I don't know who they were, if they're producers or they're involved with the show and they wanted to do something with ski racing. And I don't know what happened. I feel cool. like COVID kind of threw a wrench into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it would be cool. Like, I've heard really good things. Um, I just, sometimes it's hard for me to like get sucked into a show. Um, so um, I will watch it. I'm not the kind of person who gets sucked into shows. This, you, you'll love it. It's <laughs> phenomenal. And, and the reason I bring it up is I'm thinking of the visualization. I mean, to go back in this conversation 15 minutes ago, like, you know, they're doing the same thing you're doing, taking the same turn that they've took eight minutes ago as much as they took three years ago on, on identical courses. And so, like, they can play the course in their mind with their eyes closed. Mm-hmm. The question sort of stems back to that and the coaching side of things. Like, are you given visualization programs? Are you, how often do you look at a computer and, and watch a YouTube race? I'll... I mean, video is a huge component of ski racing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, there are times when I'll spend a crazy amount of time just going over tracks, going over skiers, seeing what they're doing. Um, And, I mean, you you can benefit just by watching the best skiers in the world, kind of seeing what they're able to do, the reason why they do it, too. So that's a huge part. And then, obviously, like, channeling that into visualizing yourself and figuring out... um, it's important that you have to kind of be on those tracks and experience them so that you like you know the feel and you know what what to expect mm-hmm. um, and there's a difference between like the perfect line versus like the perfect skiing, which I've kind of found out lately that um, yeah you gotta you gotta play with it, but it takes a like a lot and I always think like the summertime's a great time to be just like plugging into that, you know, here mm-hmm. and there a couple hours um, a day or a week and just staying in tune so that when the time comes around, you're kind of like mentally prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of being able to figure out how to do it with your body. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, like, I think about the, the in cycling, you do it in the real world. In skiing, you're doing it in the real world. So yeah, you might be like the best testing <laughs> specimen out there, but until you're out there doing the race, it's a totally different ballgame. And then at the same time, I also think of a very entertaining Tour de France stage where I think Robbie McEwen got second or third or eighth or whatever. He didn't win the race. He was the fastest sprinter. But he was like, oh, I didn't know that with 100 yards to go we were going to turn right. And like, you know, how raw yeah. cycling is in that regard. Yeah. And now, finally, within the past couple of years, yeah, you're getting, you know, pre-race video analysis and you know step-by-step step where the yeah. races are going to shake out. But it's just, it's so opposite to these races that have been going on for forever. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, at the end of the day, I feel ski racing is just reactive. Like yeah. you try to you put yourself in the start gate, like knowing the prep work you put in and feeling confident with what you're on, but you kind of got to click out and then you have no idea how it's going to go. You mm-hmm. just got to, you know, let it happen. Right. Um, but it's cool too. I, I think just in sport in general, like there's always going to be that that constant evolution and progression to try to push the fir- sport further. And, yeah. and you'll see like crazy things come out, I think, in the next few years, just trying to get to that extra level. Mm hmm. Oh, it's so freaking cool. Yeah, and that's why we race. That's why you ski. Yeah. What's your mental state when you're on the start gate and the beeps are going down? Are you super nervous? Are you hyped? Are you relaxed? Are you Yeah, I try to be as relaxed as possible. Like, try to get my heart rate as low as possible. Just, like, 
appreciating like where I am and I mean for one just how much fun it's going to be um and and a li- like trying to keep track of a plan that I'm trying to do but not hanging on like I think when I ski my best it's when I really like let loose and um kind of let the mountain push and pull me the way it should and then um take what I can but there are times it's hard too um when you're just not there mentally like and you still have to I mean push as well as you can and and kind of hope for the best Mm -hmm. it's a battle yeah uh what do you do where do you go how do you step away from the sport you know professional athletics are so all-consuming what do you do to relax um i feel like i'm a bit of a nihilist like i just do what i want (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i mean i definitely like when i'm on the road i'm gone from family and, and i miss those types of things so when I'm home, I definitely try to see um, my mom, my sister, my dad, mm-hmm. sister's kids, and then like nieces and nephews, cousins, friends, family, everyone. Um, but also like just having a good, healthy lifestyle. I mean, I love the outdoors, um, whether it's biking or hiking or just walking around. I think that's also a good part of um, my lifestyle too. And then like eating good food, I don't yeah. know, all those things. Heck yeah. Uh I often want to ask the the folks I'm interviewing what's their favorite workout, which I've never done. And so it's kind of interesting to be asking someone who doesn't even participate in the sport that I do, what is your favorite workout? It'd be a mountain bike ride, but I don't think I can I count s- that. Like I'll let it well okay, you get two. Yeah. Mountain bike ride. Mountain bike like because obviously aerobically it's fantastic, but then the flow state you get yeah. um on the way down is just like you just like zero out your mind and you can just send it down I, I think that's like that's the closest i get to ski racing when and how i'm about not on snow if you're if you're talking to your coach and he says go mountain biking does he give you anything specific yeah just it'll like, yeah we do a lot of like um kind of like steady state yep. lactic threshold workouts um trying to be in those like specific heart rate zones mm-hmm. and it's tough too like our whole program this summer was kind of it's hard to get that on a mountain bike, especially around here. Yeah, so, so punchy. I did a lot more gravel riding. Nice. Um, like I'm going to go for a gravel ride after this. Sick. So come back in a year. <laughs> yeah, I'll go ride with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, non cycling favorite workout. I don't think it's my favorite, but I think it's like the best. Yeah. I did it um, last week on Friday, and it's just like a strength endurance workout, and it's like kind of like lower weight, but crazy amount of reps. So like, I should try to memorize it off the top of my head. It was 40 body or 40 squats, which was actually like weighted. I think it was like 95 pounds Ouch. into 40 seconds of box jumps into single leg, um, split squats with dumbbells, 20 reps, each leg into, uh, lateral drop jumps for 10 reps into 40 leg press. Um, which was, I think it was probably like, it was that the machine I was using was PSI. So it yeah. was like, ha. Huh. Not weighted, but they say it's like equal, so like yeah. roughly two hundred pounds into um what were the last oh into the workouts for like a new bounder, which is a specific equipment that I don't have, so I was just doing like powerful body weight squats um for forty seconds and then twenty reps of a uh um just a like hex bar deadlift dang weighted I think that was probably like a hundred pounds. That's nuts. Uh, yeah. So you're not doing this in your backyard, or maybe you are with a ridiculous no. gym setup. <laughs> no. Are you doing this at the gym? Yeah, I was doing. Um, I've been able to work out at UVM actually. Nice. Um, the strength coach there was 
I tested there earlier than summer and they're like, you can work out here. So now that's, that's kind of where I go. And it's awesome. It's yeah. exactly what you need. It's cool too. Like you don't need a lot. You just need mm-hmm. something like some weight that you can throw around. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, yeah. I'm like, okay, how am I going to start doing the strength for next year? And I love the TRX, but I want yeah. a little bit more than that this year. It's unfortunate. So at Cochran's, we used to have a squat rack set up. Yeah. That's where I trained all last summer, was out in the field. Nice. Um, but that's since been moved. So sorry, I can't help you out. Quite all right. Um, so I traditionally wrap with three questions that typically has to do with where to ride a bike, but now I'm going to do them for skiing. Where is your favorite place to ski? It's uh, this small little ski hill in Richmond, Vermont called Cochran Ski Area. Wicked. <laughs> uh, what is the number one place you'd like to ski that you never skied? Oh, that's a good question. Um, can I say two? Sure. I was going to say, you've probably skied in a lot of places. Yeah, but I definitely, like, there have been places I've missed out on. One, I haven't ever skied Cortina, which is where World Championships were last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of my injury, I wasn't able to go. So I'd say Cortina, but then also looking forward to this year. Um, the I don't know the name of the ski resort, but wherever it is in Beijing is like where yeah. I would look forward to ski. Heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, and who is the favorite person? Who's the number one person you'd like to go skiing with? Hmm. Do they have to be a ski racer? No, it could be like, like the Gandhi. <laughs> it could be anybody. Gumby, fictional, nonfiction, oh. living or otherwise. Well, I guess the better question is, who is the number one person you'd like to go up a ski lift and be able to pick their brain? Because there's not yeah. much communication while you're skiing. All right, I'll say um, one of my favorite authors uh, was David. Is David Foster Wallace was, um, and I think he. It'd be cool just to have a conversation with him. He's since deceased, so um, I think that would be living or otherwise. Yeah. We'll invite him back. Yeah. Uh, terrific answers. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Ted. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Welcome to your nearly hometown. (laughs) Very cool. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank you, listeners. Be sure to follow Ryan on his 2022 season, which kicks off with the first World Cups at the end of this month. He's on Instagram at rc.s. Of course, his name is Ryan Cochran Siegel, so rc.s. Check him out on Instagram. If you enjoyed this show, as always, a five-star review is appreciated. A simple sentence or two works wonders as well. I appreciate it. Give the gift of entertainment and conversation and education for free by telling your friends, tell your family about this show. Spread the word. Again, if you're interested in trying out Whoop, especially their new Strap 4.0, all-day fitness monitoring, all-day wellness monitoring. Trust me, I was as big of a skeptic as it comes when it, when it comes to fitness monitors. And I was quickly blown away by the depth of data that the Whoop is able to capture with simple real-world adjustments to be made. I love it. Full stop. Check them out at join.whoop.com slash TED to get yours for free. That's it, folks. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.